Our scripture reading this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Will you hear the word of the Lord with me? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the, in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, and fasten on the belt of truth around your waist, and put on the breastplate of righteousness. As shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. For with all of these, take the, with all of these, take the shield of faith, with which you will, you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the spirit at all times. In at all times in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. Pray also for me, so that when I speak, a message may be given to me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly as I must speak. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Father God, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer, and our savior. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Before we dive into our scripture this morning, I invite you to take a little step back in history with me. The year is 9 AD, 9 AD. And Publius Quintilus Varus, the Roman governor of Germania, is preparing his troops to set up camp in, he's preparing his troops to move to their winter camp. As they're packing up the camp, one of the Germanic officers, one of the Ger Germanic chieftains, Arminius, rides up. Now, Arminius isn't your typical Ger Germanic chieftain. At a young age, Arminius was taken from his tribe and his family. His, his own father was a German chieftain. He was taken from his family and he was brought to Rome. And while he was there, he was educated as a Roman, trained to fight as a Roman, and eventually, as he grew up, he, he became a Roman citizen and became a Roman officer in the military. So. This was a common practice at the time for Rome to take young, young boys, bring them to Rome, train them as Romans, and then send them back home. So at some point, after he had completed all of his training, Arminius was taken from Rome and sent back to Germania, where he took over his father's tribe. What Rome didn't expect was that Arminius maintained his loyalty to his Germanic tribe and his Germanic roots. So when he was sent back, 
to take over this tribe in the name of Rome. Without the Romans knowing, he started gathering an army. So he spent a good bit of time in the summer of 9 AD gathering reinforcements with other Germanic tribes and they formed alliances to fight back against Rome. And so the end of 9 AD comes along and Arminius rides up to Varus and his troops and because Varus trusted Arminius, he, Varus trusted Arminius. He didn't have any reason not to trust him because in Varus's mind, Arminius is now thoroughly Roman and he can be trusted. So Ar Arminius rides up to Varus as they're preparing for their winter, to, to move out to their winter camp, and he tells Varus, there's a rebellion brewing. We should probably squash that before it, it gets any worse. And Varus, trusting Arminius, decides that he doesn't want that re rebellion to get stronger over the winter while they're at their winter camp, so he decides, well, we'll go ahead and squash this rebellion and then go to our winter camp. So Varus packs up his Roman legions and he rides out with Arminius. They reach the, tu the Tudorberg forest and that night, as they're getting ready to set up camp, Arminius tells Varus, there's some things I need to go forward and scout for, so I I'm gonna ride ahead, but take this trail th through the Tudorberg forest and it's a shortcut to where the rebellion is brewing. So take that shortcut and we'll surprise them. But I, I, I need to go and scout ahead. Varus agrees, Arminius rides off. The next morning, Varus and his Roman legions are getting ready to go into the forest. But this shortcut is a much narrower path than the Roman legions are used to. At this time, one of the most effective military strategies that the Roman military had was their shield wall. But you needed a lot of room to have an, an effective shield wall. This trail th through the forest was so narrow that they couldn't form the shield walls. So the Roman legions were broken up. They were broken up in a way that they could walk through the forest. So they start walking through this forest and a few miles in, Germanic soldiers, tribes, people, start pouring over the trees and the hills on both sides of the Roman legions. And they were effective, the Roman legions were effectively decimated. The highly trained and well-organized Roman legions were taken down by this relatively small it wasn't small, but relatively speaking, it was small compared to the Roman legions. The Roman legions were taken down because the Romans were on unfamiliar land. They were spread out and unable to gather their comrades into effective shield walls to, to, to protect and defend themselves. And they were unprepared for ambush. They trusted Arminius. As Christians, we don't fight as the Romans did. We don't fight the physical battles that the Romans did. 
However, we will be faced with difficult, sorrowful, and unideal times, mournful times. Fortunately, as soldiers of the triune God, we have a different story. We have hope and full assurance that our God will be and is triumphant. Keep this in mind. We, we will revisit this illustration later. How now, how, however, now I invite you to dive into scripture with me. So Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, does occur at the end of Ephesians. But Paul's writing, in general, is incredibly logical and it's beautiful. I, I love his writing. But Paul is writing from a Roman prison to the to the Ephesian church. The Ephesian church at this time was co comprised primarily of Gentile converts. So these people were not necessarily familiar with Jewish scriptures. They were Romans. They were Ephesians who had been converted to Christianity and they're only just now becoming f familiar with the promises and the scriptures that Christianity came out of. So when Paul is writing this letter, it makes sense that he draws upon the, Im the imagery of the soldier's attire because he's surrounded by Roman soldiers and their habits and their gear and their garb. There are various images of God's armor or the armor of God in the Old Testament, in the Jewish scriptures. However, because Paul is writing to a very Gentile community, his audience, his Gentile audience, probably would have thought of a Roman soldier and Roman garb when they were hearing Paul's letter. So Paul himself, who is Jewish, who was most likely drawing from Jewish imagery. However, he's also drawing from Roman soldier Im Im imagery. Neither of these are wrong. It just depends on the audience, but they both convey similar points. So both images work and they are appropriate. Now this passage, Ephesians 6, occurs at the end of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. And throughout this particular epistle, Paul structures this by saying the first three chapters are God's plan of salvation, and the last three chapters are how to live a holy life in relation to God's plan of salvation. And so in God's plan of salvation, God offers redemptions to humans through the blood of Christ. However, this redemption doesn't require humans to do anything to earn it. The grace and redemption that God offers was freely given. Since before the beginning of time, God already planned to become incarnate to cleanse us in his blood, and to make us holy. God's intent is to make us holy. But not just us. God also set out to redeem all of creation. And so by the blood of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God plans to bring humanity and all of creation back to God, unite us back to God, and to redeem all of us. However, even though this grace is freely given, God also gave us the free will to receive it or to reject it. 
And those who receive it are sealed by the Holy Spirit and set apart as God's own. God gives us new life and unites us to the family of God and equips us to live holy lives by the blood of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul provides numerous examples of what holy living looks like. And one way believers can live holy lives is through mutual submission. Now remember, the first three chapters of Ephesians are all about God's plan of salvation. And the last three chapters are about what does it look like to live God's plan of salvation. And so God gives us holy life, holy new life, and unites us to the body of, of, of believers. And one way we live out this holiness is by mutually submitting to one another. And the three examples that Paul uses in mutual submission are husbands and wives. Husbands submit to wives, wives submit to husbands, and an act of mutual love. Parents submit to children, children submit to parents as an act of mutual love. Slaves submit to masters, masters submit to slaves, and an act of mutual love. Because all of these socioeconomic classes and familial relations are all made equal in the eyes of God by the love of God. And these relationships are made holy by God's holy love. And immediately after talking about submission, Paul gives his famous armor of God passage. When the Ephesian Gentiles heard Paul's words, they most likely would have been shocked by his assertions. It wasn't the use of warrior imagery in relation to the Christian life that would have shocked them. Rather, it would have been the fact that Paul exhorts all believers, which include slaves who were Christian, to put on the armor of God and receive the sword. At this time, slaves were not given swords. So for Paul to make the comments about mutual submission of slaves and their masters, and then to talk about the armor of God, it was very clear to the original audience that Paul meant slaves who were Christians would be equipped in the same way and the same manner that their masters were. So we have this theme of unity. We are united in Christ regardless of our socioeconomic class, gender, life stage. None of that matters in the eyes of God. We're all united by the blood of Christ and all of us desperately need the blood of Christ to sanctify us and to make us holy. However, it's also important to note that Paul emphasizes that this battle is not a physical battle. If y'all will jump back to the Gospels with me, remember when Jesus was alive, his Jewish contemporaries, even some of his disciples, were expecting Jesus to be a military messiah and create a physical kingdom and throw down the Romans and return Israel to its glory. But that's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to set up a spiritual kingdom. And this spiritual kingdom is the church. The church which is covered in the blood of Christ and united by the Holy Spirit. We are the church. We are the spiritual kingdom of God. Jesus was not the revolutionary or earthly king the Jews were hoping for. 
Rather, Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God on earth, and the kingdom of God that is here on earth is the church, and the church is not bound by physical boundaries or time. The church transcends time. It transcends physical boundaries. It's a spiritual kingdom. So this spiritual battle in which we participate doesn't need physical weapons. We need spiritual protection and spiritual weapons. However, we have neither the knowledge or the wisdom or equipment to fight spiritual battles. But thanks be to God, because God equips us to fight spiritual warfare. Paul begins verse 10 in chapter 6 by commanding the the Ephesians, y'all must be strong in the Lord and his mighty strength. Right off the bat, Paul returns to the fact that we need God to equip us to fight these spiritual battles because we are a spiritual kingdom. Paul is very explicit in this reminder that the Ephesians must depend on God. And this is revealed in the language that Paul uses. Now, the English translations that we have are pleasant and relatively mild. It says, take up the armor of God, put on the armor of God. That that sounds very pleasant, right? If you go back and look at the Greek verbs that Paul is using, the specific type of Greek verbs that Paul is using was reserved for commands. And so it's a very emphatic verb that Paul is using. So a better translation could possibly be, y'all must, y'all must clothe yourselves and y'all must take up the armor of God. This is a command. This is an emphatic statement. You must depend on God. You must depend and receive upon the armor that God provides to you. Also, Paul essentially says the same thing twice. Be strong in the Lord and put on God's armor in order to stand against evil. Oh yeah, in case you missed it. Take on the armor of God in order to withstand the spiritually evil things. Again, this is not a physical battle, rather a spiritual battle for the glory of God. This is not for an earthly cause or kingdom, but it is for the kingdom of God. But also notice that the text, Paul's letter doesn't say, go out and find and create the spiritual armor. No, it says to receive. Receive this armor from God. Receive the spiritual armor from God. Because God alone can give us spiritual armor gifts and graces to withstand the spiritual battles that we're going to face. Yes, God freely offers salvation. However, God also gave us the free will to receive it or reject it. We must continually lay down our lives and submit in love to the Lord. And by doing so, God sanctifies us. God makes us holy. Each and every day, he transforms us into more holy people for the glory of God. And God also unites us to the kingdom of God, to the church, to the body of believers. Now, 
Once Paul hammers this point into the Ephesians' heads, he moves into identifying different parts of the armor of God. Now, it is important to note that, yes, certain parts of the armor are given different types of attributes. However, the attributes given to each part of the armor are not necessarily a one-to-one relation. Rather, it's symbolic. All of the pieces together represent dependence on God for strength and formation and transformation. So the attributes that are given to each piece of armor are instead meant to be metaphors. Belt, truth. We see that in Isaiah 11.5. Breastplate, righteousness. Helmet, salvation. Both of those are seen in Isaiah 59.17. Sandals, gospel of peace. Shield, faith. Sword of God, word of God. Yes, Paul does draw from biblical imagery. However, the Ephesian Gentiles that Paul is writing to would have been familiar with Roman garb and what the different parts of the Roman garb meant. So, for example, the garb of Roman soldiers set them apart, and in particular, the belt. Roman soldiers wore their belts, and that was one of their identifying markers. In fact, the belt was so important, it was so much a part of their identity, that if a soldier got out of line or wasn't doing something they were supposed to be doing, a Roman officer, the Roman soldier's officer, would take their belt away. And in doing so, they were stripping that soldier of their identity as a punishment. So the belt was an identifying marker for them. That belt revealed their identity, and their identity was that of a Roman soldier. In the same way, the Ephesian Gentiles would have recognized the point that Paul is making about what the armor means and what the armor is intended to do. By allowing God to clothe you in God's armor, you are set apart and you are marked as God's own. When you receive God's armor and allow God to clothe you in God's armor, you are making a statement about your identity. You belong to God. You belong to the kingdom of God. That is your identity. Now, although the characteristics attributed to different parts of the armor were technically intended to be metaphors and not necessarily a one-to-one relation, we do need to look at the different attributes that Paul brings up. Paul brings up truth, righteousness, gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and word of God. Each of these attributes described by Paul are tools and attributes that God himself equips us with. Remember the truth that Christ is Lord and Savior. God's sanctifying and transformative grace increases righteousness, faith, and assures us of salvation so that we might glorify God. As we grow in relationship with God, we also have to familiarize ourselves with Scripture. When Paul was writing 
and talks about the word of God, he would have been thinking of the Old Testament scriptures, the Jewish scriptures and scrolls. And he would have been thinking of the oral tradition in the early church of the gospel. As Christians today, we not only inherit that tradition of the Jewish scriptures and the oral traditions, we also have the canon of scripture, the Old Testament, the New Testament. But we've also inherited the traditions passed down from generation of Christians to generation of Christians. We have the historic creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed. We have the various traditions of the church and theological traditions that help us to understand who God is and who we are in relationship to God. All of these help us to know God and to receive God's armor. It connects us to God. Now, although Paul talks about the armor of God in relation to particular individual people. Underlying all of this, because remember that this occurs in a passage right after mutual submission and about unity. Not only are we talking about personal spiritual transformation of individual people, we're also talking about that occurring within the community. A soldier, a Roman soldier could train as much as he wanted. He could be the best individual soldier possible. But as soon as he steps out onto that field of battle, without the rest of his unit, without the rest of the army and his comrades, he's going to fail. Remember, the thing that made the Roman army so successful was that military shield wall. One man can't make a shield wall. One woman can't make a shield wall. But a group of them, a legion, they can make an effective shield wall. And so yes, we do talk about putting on the armor of God individually and practicing spiritual disciplines individually. However, all of this has to occur within Christian community. I will say that the example I used of Tutenberg, uh, uh, of Tudeberg is incredibly imperfect. It's imperfect because it relies on the strength of men. The Battle of Teutoburg failed because the strength of men failed. They were dependent upon this group of people alone, the shield wall alone made up of just men to defend themselves, and it failed miserably. However, my example is also imperfect because even if Christians fail, we know who wins. Yes, we live in a broken world. Yes, we will fall down, we will make mistakes, and sometimes, even with the best intentions, we will fail. But we know the outcome already. God has won. God has already won. Jesus Christ died, he rose from the dead, defeating death, he ascended into heaven, and he's coming again in final victory. Christ has, God has already won, and God will win. We have this blessed assurance because Christ died, rose, ascended, and is coming back. We already know the outcome. 
but we are still living in a broken world. We are still living in a world where there is spiritual battles. But because we still live in this world, yes, we have this blessed assurance that God is coming back and God wins, but while we're still here living on this earth, we still need community. It is not good for Christians to be alone. We need the fellowship of other believers to encourage one another and to hold one another accountable. We are united to all other believers by the blood of Christ and the seal of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives each and every one of us different gifts and graces. But that's not for you to cling to and do what you want with. The gifts and graces given to you by God, by the Holy Spirit, are intended to uplift and help the body of believers, the body of Christ, the kingdom of God, for the glory of God. Church, I know that we are all in the midst of transitions. I'm sure that there's so many transitions happening in your own personal lives. I know there are plenty of personal transitions occurring in my own life. I've been a student for I don't even know how many years, and I'm transitioning into this role as an associate pastor. Y'all are in transition from losing one associate pastor and gaining another one. There's a lot of uncertainty in the church as a whole. However, despite all of these transitions, God has given us this community God has placed all of us together and all of us have willingly come into this community. God has given us one another and has given each and every one of us different grace, graces and gifts to support one another and up, uplift the community and hold one another accountable to glorify God. And so I know that y'all don't know me that well and I don't know y'all that well. But over time, we're going to build relationships. We'll be in fellowship with one another. We're going to learn and grow together. We're going to train together. <laughs> because we are warriors of the triune God. We are warriors of the God who has already won. And as Christ is sitting at the right hand of God and he's coming back in final victory, we know who wins. So yes, there are uncertain times ahead of us. Yes, we have lots of relationships to build. But we all serve one Lord. We all serve one Lord and leader and king. And knowing that he is our Lord and leader and king, we can move forward with confidence, with full confidence of the children of God and boldly approach the throne. So yes, we can lament and we can mourn uncertain times difficult times and transitions. But we are not a people who mourn and lament without hope. We are a people who can mourn and can lament with hope and assurance and confidence that God wins. So fellow Christian soldiers, I urge you to humble yourselves before God and receive the armor of God, 
because you must. Allow God to cover you in the blood of Christ and seal you with the Holy Spirit. Let God equip you with all of God's armor, the means of grace, and community, which includes gifts of the Spirit, scripture, prayer, service to one another. Commit yourselves daily to all of these things and take time to be with God alone. But also take time to be with God within community. This place of worship brings us back in community with one another and redirects our focus to God. You will face things that you can't handle. However, by the grace of God, God will equip you with all things you need to fulfill the tasks that he calls you to. And he's going to equip this church with the gifts and graces to to be able to face what the future holds. Because we as a church cannot face the future without God. There will be things that this church cannot handle. But by the grace of God, God is going to equip us to face these times and to get through them for the glory of God and to uplift the kingdom of God. God will provide the community of believers for you through prayers and physical presence. God has given us, each and every one of us, new identity as children of God. God has united us into the family of God with the great cloud of witnesses behind us, the present believers today, and the believers who will come after us. God has equipped us with the Holy Spirit, and he's washed us in the blood. I urge you, all of you, to allow God to sanctify you and to bring you into community. Be involved in this community. Support one another. Uplift one another. Because by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, God will sanctify us and train us to live holy lives. Praise be to God.